Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you know our fears and you know our frame. Lord, you know the things that shake us up and terrify us, Lord. And Lord, we're giving you those fears right now. And we're asking that we would not be overcome by fear, but we would overcome fears through faith, through the name of Jesus, Lord. Lord, you have promised that when we walk through the floods and when we walk through the fire, Lord, that not only, not only will you deliver us, not only will you walk through us, but you'll bring it through to glory. Lord, I pray that you would renew the expectation of faith in all of your daughters this morning. Lord, that our prayers would be prayed with expectation and the certainty that you are going to come through and do something absolutely amazing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I think you would agree with me that often it's the little things that daunt us, isn't it? It's we are so easily put off. You know, personally, I hate my fears. My fears used to be my friends. I've realized they are no friend of mine, my fears. They terrify me. They want to shake me up. They want to keep me from life itself. Fears are no friends. David said in Psalm 64, 1, Lord, preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. You see, David wasn't asking to be preserved from the enemy. He realized that the fear of the enemy was much worse than the enemy. And it's so true that it's our fear of things that are much worse than those things. We hear the word persecution, and we just start almost shaking. Like, oh, Lord, I don't, I don't want to go through persecution. I have these women in my life, and I love them, but they're always like, man, it's coming. Persecution is coming. And just like, you know, I don't think it's going to be like that. I think that the Lord is going to give us a spirit of grace and glory. That's what Peter said, that God's spirit of grace and glory rests upon those that are going through these trials. And often when we're thinking about the trial, because we don't have the spirit of grace and glory upon us, we begin to panic. Because we don't have that spirit of grace and glory. But when we are in the midst of the trial, the very center of it, you know what? It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. We're walking with Jesus. And we are more centered on, oh my goodness, I'm in the fire, I'm not burned, and Jesus is right here. It's like a glory. But when you hear about it, there's a fiery furnace. You're like, no. But when you're in it, you're like, you know what? It isn't hot in the furnace, man. That's a song. It isn't hot in the furnace, man. This furnace is cool, cool, cool. Because that's, it's a really good musical. But that's what the Lord does. He takes those things and he gives us the spirit of grace and glory. So we're not to fear. But you know, one little thing goes wrong. And we are so ready to throw in the towel, claim that the devil is the victor. All right, you get this one. Yeah, we, we 
too easily give victory to the devil or claim that he's after us, he's defeating us, he got through the hedge. No, he didn't get through the hedge. I remember going through a a really big trial. You know, it always seems like trials are worst when they're aimed at your children. I can take a trial about me, but when it's my child, (laughs) and they're all really old now, but it doesn't matter, when it's about my children, it's just like, oh. And I remember going through something, and I'm finding one of the women at church who prays. And I remember she grabbed my face, because I was a little bit in a panic. It's hard for me to focus when I get panicked. You know, it's like, uh. And she just, like, grabbed my face. And she said, Cheryl, nothing can touch you that hasn't come through the filter of God's love. The other day, I was on my daily walk. I think God might call it my daily complaint, but I like to think of it as a walk. I told you before, the first smile, he says, Gabriel, just ignore her. She's got to get it out of her system. And then he starts listening to my prayers when I get to the second mile, because then I'm kind of worn out and I'm more reasonable. But as I was you know, on this um, time with the Lord, my prayer time, I looked up and I saw a street called Sparrow. And the Lord was reminding me that not a sparrow falls to the ground, but that the Lord is mindful of that sparrow. And I have to say, at that time, I wasn't thinking of myself as the sparrow. I have someone very precious to me. And I was thinking of them as the sparrow. And God was saying to me, because, you know, sometimes it's harder to entrust somebody else to Jesus than it is ourselves. You know, we're kind of like, if I perish, I perish. But that other person, you know? And I saw Sparrow Street. And the Lord, actually it was Sparrow Court. And the Lord was saying to me, not a sparrow falls to the ground. Cheryl, I've got this one covered. Because what does Jesus say? Are you not more valuable than sparrows? One of my mom's favorite songs is his eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches over me. But we're so easily daunted. We cry. We try to escape. We try to move away. You know, in our mind, there's got to be some town in the United States that's safe. You know, and... and, Everybody I know thinks it's in Colorado <laughs> or Idaho. But, you know, there's, there's no place that's, that's safe. God wants us to triumph in these things. God wants us to be unintimidated by persecution, by different cultures, by deficits, by sorcerers, by desert places, and by dignitaries. He doesn't want us living in our fears and being entrapped or being bordered by those fears. He wants to expand our borders. In Isaiah, God says, pull out the tent pegs and expand the tent. Because God wants to do bigger things. The Bible has a totally different perspective on trials than the one we usually take. 
The Bible tells us that trials are allowed for God's glory. You know, we see a trial and we're like, okay, this is the thing that's going to kill me. This is the thing that's going to ruin my witness. This is the thing that I'm going to be known for. God says, no, this is the thing that's going to bring me glory. God says that trials are for his purposes, that he's got a purpose. It wouldn't have hit you. It wouldn't be in your life if it wasn't intended for God's purposes. The Bible also tells us that God is in control no matter what we're going through. God is sovereign over it, and he's working through it, in it, and by it. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible says things like this in Psalm 76.10, Even the wrath of man shall praise you. That God can even take the worst thing that man intends and bring glory out of it. In Nahum 1.3, it says, The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. Let me just stop right here and say, we live in a sin-corrupted world. We live in a world where men have rejected God and they have pushed him aside. And there are consequences to that decision. There is disaster and destruction and death, disease, because of that decision that men have made. And we live with those consequences. But God said, I can take those consequences. I can take the worst thing and I can turn it to glory. I can bring about my purposes, even in the whirlwind, even in the wrath of man. I think of 9-11 and I think about how horrid it was that these terrorists took these airplanes and destroyed lives and buildings and structures with these airplanes. The violence, the chaos, the trouble. That was not the wrath of God. That was the natural consequence of sinful men who have said, out of my life. That's what it is. And why did God allow it? Because these men are not calling him into their storms. Because these men are saying, we can do it without God. And God will often let us feel the consequences. As it says in Romans chapter 1, God gave them up to what they wanted. God's way is often to give us exactly what we want. And let us feel the leanness in our soul of that decision. But even... In the worst, the minute you bring God into it, he's going to do something glorious. The storms out at sea in Galilee that the disciples were on, they were going to let Jesus sleep because they thought they didn't need him to handle the storms. They thought they could do it without Jesus. They were fishermen. They knew the Galilee. But they found that the storms of life The natural consequences of sin in a fallen world were too much for them. And when they awoke Jesus, when they brought Jesus into the storm, what did Jesus do? He brought peace. He brought calm. And they saw his sovereign power. 
Jesus wants into the storms of our life to bring that calm, to bring that peace, and to show us who he is. All things work together for the good. Jesus will work even these things to the good. And that's what the Bible tells us. But the Bible also tells us other things based on the sovereignty of God, based on the fact that God is over all. This is our hope. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, But as for you, speaking of the wrath of man, his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Doesn't matter what men's intention is or what their intentions were. When we give it to God, God's going to turn it around for his good. In Esther 9.1, we read, On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, I love this, the opposite occurred. I love that phrase. The opposite occurred. doesn't matter what the intention of, of men. Their evil intention doesn't matter. Because God, when you invite him in, the opposite occurred. In that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Romans 5.3 And not only that, we glory in tribulation knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. As believers, we are to look up in all things and see how God wants to use even the hardest circumstances for his glory. All right, Lord, here's the storm. Do your best. That's what we're supposed to do. We are not to give in to our circumstances, but to find God and God's purposes in all our circumstances. We are not to hide or hide out, but to stand up and to seek God's direction and power for our lives in these circumstances. Rather than being daunted, thwarted, or overcome by the hardships of life, we are to see what God is doing in, through, and by these circumstances. That means we need to be open to his leading and the opportunities he opens. We need to know that God has a plan. God always has a plan. Going back to 9-11, I think I've told you this before, but on 9-10, Brian had flown back to Washington, D.C. Uh, he was supposed to be part of uh, a huge banquet there. Of course, the banquet was canceled, and there he was stuck in Washington, D.C. And most of the phone lines were down. Um, his flights were canceled. All the rental cars were gone. He went to rent a car because he thought, I'll drive to California. I've got to get back to Cheryl. I had pneumonia. And so he thought, you know, I'll drive back. And all the cars were gone. So he called me up and he says, honey, I think God wants me here. Well, Brian was an ordained um, Red Cross chaplain. So he went up to New York City because he was able to get a ride up to New York City. He got there and he said, all right, God, use me for your purposes. And right away they started sending him to the hospitals. They had him counseling the families who didn't know the estate of their loved ones. It was this incredible opportunity. 
But then Brian and another pastor, Lloyd Pulley, they got this brainstorm. And this was their brainstorm. To go to Union Square, set up an open mic, and let anybody share that wanted to share. And then in between people sharing, they would share the gospel. And Brian said, you know, there was something about allowing people the opportunity to speak that made them more respectful when Brian and Lloyd and the other pastors got up to share the gospel. And the Lord saved many people in Union Square, thousands upon thousands. Brian estimated the crowd between five and 10,000 people all gathered in Union Square because the people of New York were lost. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and they didn't know what to do. They all of a sudden felt their vulnerability, and they came together. And I remember Brian called me up, and he said, listen to this. And there was this girl at the microphone singing a cappella, God bless America. And you could hear all the people singing with her. And he said, Cheryl, God is on the move. You see, God takes the worst that man does and says, I'll bring glory out of this. I will stamp this with victory. We don't have to go under our circumstances. God intends victory and glory. He's got a plan. He always has a plan. No matter what you're going through, you need to say, God has a plan he always has a plan. Jeremiah 29, 11, The Israelites were going into captivity in Babylon. It looked bad. It looked like it was over. Jerusalem was destroyed. It had been burned. The temple was absolutely torn apart. And the Lord spoke to Jeremiah to let those people know God has a plan for good. God always has a plan. And that's what Philip learned. God always has a plan. In Acts chapter 8, we learn that persecution begins to come against the church. And this is a heavy persecution. I think this must have been a frightening time for the church. Imagine there's this one man, Saul, this young man, filled up with such zeal and vehemence. He is a And he begins to play havoc on the church in Jerusalem. He is busting down the doors of these Christian homes. And he's dragging out the men and the women and the fathers and the mothers. And he's committing them to prison. It would have been a totally frightening time. You wouldn't know if your house was on his list. Or when your house was on his list. No doubt the church there in Jerusalem could feel the fear, had questions, and felt vulnerable. But God used this persecution to scatter the believers and begin to spread the word of God. Oh, how we love congregating together. You know, and sometimes we can congregate so much together. You know, we've got Christian jobs. We've got a Christian hair salon. We've got a Christian mailbox. You know, we've got a Christian everything so we don't have to touch the world. Or, look, I'm going to Starbucks. I don't want to go there alone. I need five Christians to go in there with me. You know, we get so afraid of our own mission field. 
Like, they're out there. (laughs) We love congregating together, but sometimes the Lord will break that up. He'll have you go alone someplace. Because when you're alone, you're easier to talk to. Because, Because he can use you. And that's exactly what God did. He began to spread the word. I love this Philip. He was not daunted by the persecution. In fact, he left Jerusalem and headed for Samaria. He is just one of the many testimonies of how God worked. See, what the author Luke is doing in this chapter is he's saying, I want to show you one example of how God used this persecution for glory. And, and here's Philip. I believe there were many, many stories. The disciples, the apostles decided to stay in Jerusalem. What was their story? We're not told, but obviously they had a story. Because Paul and John and James, they persevered, Andrew, through this persecution. What is their story? But he says, look, I only have 28 chapters. So let me just give you this story. Let me tell you the story of what God did with Philip. And you know why I think he chose Philip? Because Philip was the least likely to talk about. He was a Hellenist. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. His experience was administrative. We're not told about him doing wonders when he was delivering the supplies to the widows in Jerusalem. We're told about Stephen. His story is absolutely glorious. He's doing miracles. He's got this irresistible wisdom. But we're not told about God using Philip in any spectacular way. He's just administrative, and he's close to Stephen. Now, here he is. His co-worker has just been taken and stoned, has died, and that has empowered or given zeal to the persecutors of the church. What would you have felt inclined to do. As you look at this story, maybe you're like, I would have just gone to Colorado. (laughs) Found that little place where nobody locks their doors and everybody is safe. And they all have Newfoundland dogs. You know, that's, I don't know, they just seem cuddly and sweet. But that's because we don't have that spirit of grace and glory on us. But with Philip, He decides to take a trip to Samaria. We are told that he's got a good reputation. He's full of the Holy Spirit, that he's got wisdom. But he goes to Samaria, and in verse 5 of chapter 8, we're told that he was preaching Christ, or he's preaching Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, the Samaritans had a messianic hope. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and she begins to realize, you know, there's something kind of special about this man that has asked me for water. She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, the one with whom you are speaking, he is the Messiah. They had this messianic hope. They believed that the Messiah was coming. God had put it in their hearts, this expectation, as it were. 
And so Philip walks into this open door. We're told in Ephesians 2.10 that God has gone before us to prepare the good works that we should walk in them. God's already set up the divine appointments. And all we have to do is walk in obedience into those divine appointments. Again, saying, Lord, use this storm for your glory. We tend to think that the storms of life are going to discredit us. Look at her. She's in a storm. She doesn't even know how to command a boat. Look at that. I see the waves going over. But when they see Jesus walking on the water and calming the waves, all of a sudden they're saying, tell me about your Jesus. Because you know what the Bible tells us? Everybody's going to go through storms. And you're either going to go through them with Jesus and your boat will make it to the other shore gloriously or you'll sink in the middle of the sea. Everyone's going to go through storms. And when people are in a storm and they see your boat afloat, they're going to ask you, it gives you credibility. Storms do not take away our credibility. They give Jesus credibility and our relationship to Jesus credibility. So there's Philip. And he's saying to them, here's your Messiah. Jesus is your Messiah. Now, Samaria was only 30 to 40 miles away from Jerusalem. These Samaritans had no doubt heard about the suffering of Jesus. They had been told, and now they're told, this suffering that Jesus went through had purpose. He died for your sins. He is the sacrifice that God ordained to forgive you of your sins, and he's risen from the dead, and he's alive. And we're told that the multitudes heeded the things that Philip spoke with one accord. Can you imagine that? It was like a mass altar call. Everybody received it. I love that. Um, Altar calls are, are just these things that I've never been that comfortable with. You know, it's like, I see that hand, that one hand. I see it. Please become my friend and I will lead you to Jesus. I remember doing um, an altar call I was asked to at this one um, speaking engagement I had. And I gave an altar call. And oh my goodness, this whole section got up and came forward. It was like 25 young girls came forward. I was ecstatic. I went down and I wanted to pray with every girl myself to accept Jesus Christ. And afterwards, I was talking to those who had asked me to speak, my hostesses. And I said, oh my goodness, I've never had that much success at an altar call before. And they said, well, that was the U-turn for Christ girls. They come to all our sessions and give their life to the Lord every single time. (laughs) It's all right. It increased my faith. But we're told that they heard what he said. And that word heard means to receive or they took it in. They really took it all the way in. And they saw what the Lord was doing through him. God was doing amazing things. And Philip was undaunted. Not only was he undaunted by these foreigners, these Samaritans that had once been the enemies of the Jews, the ones that John had said, hey, Should we call down fire and just destroy them? Let's just get rid of the Samaritans and have more land for Israel. These very people are the ones that Philip was called to, and he's undaunted. He's he's undaunted by unclean spirits. 
by these demonic people coming forward. He's undaunted. He casts them out. He's undaunted by people that are paralyzed. He calls on the name of Jesus and they're healed. He's undaunted by the lame. He prays for them and they begin to walk. And we're told that there was great joy in the city. And then men and women are baptized in the name of Jesus. They are fully identifying with Jesus. And it causes such a stir that John and Peter hear about it back in Jerusalem. And they're thinking, what is going on in Samaria? Now, if, you're, if there's persecution, you don't want them to hear about what's going on. You know, you kind of want to be an undercover Christian, you know, the 007 Christianity. But this is such a stir, it can't be hidden. He's undaunted by even the attention that the Lord is drawing to Samaria. So Peter and John, they go to Samaria. Now, personally, I think they went there to make sure that everything was right, that the Samaritans were truly believing. But it's interesting because this is Peter. This is John. This is John who wanted to call down the fire on the Samaritans. This is Peter who wasn't sure about Gentiles ever being saved. And God is beginning to work on their hearts and expand them. And they come to Samaria and they cannot deny that God is truly working among these people. And that they desire to really see these people established in the faith. Now the Samaritans have received the word of God. They have believed the word of God. They've even been baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. But the apostles say, have you received the Holy Spirit? It's a secondary work. There is more. The first is receiving Jesus. In John chapter 20, we're told that Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the first relationship when we bring Jesus into our lives and hearts. But there's a second work, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about in Acts chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This word epi, to come upon you, and that's the second work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work that emboldens you to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Notice Well, remember that Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. You see, before a priest could serve in the office of priest, he had to be anointed for that office. And he wanted to do it under the power and the direction of the Lord. As a representative of the Lord. So we receive Jesus Christ, but when we want to step into the call of God, we need that anointing of the Spirit. We need the empowering of the Spirit. Jesus told the disciples, Terry in Jerusalem. Now Peter and John have gone up to Samaria and they said, have you received the Spirit? It's not for the elite. It is not just for the apostles. Hey, we're baptizing the Holy Spirit as leadership We need this, but it's not for the little people. It's for everybody. Whatever the call on your life, you need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness. As a mother, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness to those children. 
Uh, you know, my, my kids used to say to me, if I was getting a little mean, which I could be as a mother, exasperated, they'd say, Mom, have you read your Bible? <laughs> Mom, do you need prayer? How embarrassing is that? <laughs> but we need the Holy Spirit. My um, son, Char, when he was four years old, we were with this woman, and she was kind of acting pretty grumpy. And he went up, and he put his hand on, on her back. And she looked at him, and she's like, yes? And he goes, sometimes I have bad days, too. <laughs> and this woman said, you, you think I'm having a bad day? He goes, yes, but it's all right. I'm here, and so is Jesus. And she said, I think I need prayer. And he goes, yes, you do. <laughs> you know, we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I, I want the anointing of the Holy Spirit in everything I do. As Paul prayed for the Colossians, that they would be fruitful in every good work. I want to bear fruit in everything I do. I need the anointing of the Holy Spirit as a mother, as a grandmother, as a wife, certainly as a wife, as a neighbor, as a community member. I need that boldness. I need that power of the Holy Spirit, and so did these Samaritans. And it's not an elite work. It's for anybody who wants to be emboldened, wants to be anointed, in this life for Jesus Christ. And so we're told that they laid hands on them and they prayed for them because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them. They were not going to leave these believers without the baptism or the work of the Holy Spirit. We're told that the Samaritans received the Spirit. And Simon, who was a sorcerer, saw the power going out through Peter and John as they prayed for these people and they received. Now Simon had lived in Samaria and he had been a very notable person in Samaria. Some of the people thought he was a god. He was probably like a witch doctor in that community. Probably casting spells and doing incantations, tricks. And he had amazed these people with his powers. But he had received the word of God. He had been baptized. He believed in Jesus. But I don't think he was fully there yet. You know, sometimes people who accept the Lord, they come into Jesus and they still have some of their worldly ways. And the Lord's got to get rid of all of that, doesn't he? That's what sanctification is all about. I remember sitting on that first row and hearing this woman and man talking really loudly, you know, during the service. My dad was preaching, you know that's not supposed to be done. And I turned around just kind of like to see who they were. And this woman was wearing like a vest, and she was very endowed. And she was kind of popping out of the vest. And the guy looked like Burt Reynolds. And I looked at them and I said, you're new here, welcome. You know, two years later, I met this woman again. And she was so modest the second time. And the Lord had done these stupendous things in her life, even calling her to the mission field. And she said, do you remember me? I said, as a matter of fact, I do. (laughs) Some people just make those impressions on you that you'll never forget. 
And she said, I want to thank you for smiling at me and loving me. She said, because only now in retrospect, I think, oh my goodness, the first time I met Cheryl, she saw a little too much of me. <laughs> but God had done such a work. You know, but sometimes those things are slow to leave. And it's this dawning awareness. How much better to have the Holy Spirit sanctifying you than Cheryl Broderson? That's what my kids would say. I'm only quoting them. But, you know, he wasn't quite there because he had some things that he had held on to. And so he sought to buy this power with money. He still wanted to be notable. He wanted to be important. And he didn't like the decreasing. Philip was now being esteemed in that Samaritan society. And he was a Jew. And Simon, who had had the popularity in this village, he was now nothing. He was in the decrease mode. And he's thinking, wow, if I have that, I'll be important again. You know, we always have to be careful of when our identity becomes in anything other than Jesus Christ. And, and he was saying, hey, I can find my identity because his identity had been and being notable, being popular, these spells, this power. And Peter, Peter looks right at Simon's heart and he identifies the problem. He said, I sense that you are poisoned by bitterness. Or another translation is poisoned by jealousy and bound by iniquity. In other words, Simon, you're not completely loosed from your sins and these things that are holding you. This is jealousy. You've got an issue and it needs to be dealt with. Because you're not going to grow. And you're not going to have that right understanding as long as these things still have a grip in your life. I was reading the other day in Proverbs 27.4. And it says, Rage is terrible and wrath is cruel, but who can stand before jealousy? I think as women, we are more prone to jealousy. Because of our insecurities, we are just like, "Uh uh-oh. What about me? Isn't that kind of it? What about me? They're so beautiful. They're so talented. They're so young. What about me? I'm old. I'm ugly. You know, and I'm untalented. You know, I'm sorry. But that's how we feel. That's how I feel. I feel that way too. So you have to. <laughs> I'm not going to stand here alone. Be vulnerable before you. We're all vulnerable. But, you know, we do. We get jealous. That's not the way the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be so secure in him, knowing that this corruption is going to put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. He wants us to be so his vessel that we're ministering love and validation to each other. I want to approve the good and the excellent in my fellow sisters. I want to tell you what Jesus is doing and the beauty that I see. That's what I want to share with you. That's what the body of Christ is about. Paul says about the other disciples, they saw Jesus in me and they glorified the Lord. We are to go around looking for Jesus in each other. Oh, Jesus gave you beautiful eyes. Oh, Jesus gave you a beautiful voice. Oh, Jesus gave you extreme talents. We need to see the gifts of God in others' lives and say, that's a gift from Jesus. And it is a good, good gift. And I'm so glad he gave it to you. 
not jealousy. That's a work of the flesh. That's when we're still mindful of us. And as long as we're mindful of ourselves, Satan's got an inroad. And that's what he had in Simon. He had this inroad because of this jealousy. Peter would later warn believers in 1 Peter 5.2, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, by willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And that's what he said. This cannot be bought. The power of God cannot be bought. It must be received. And it only is received as we are emptied out, as we're willing to empty ourselves out and say, not I, but Christ in me, my hope of glory. Peter told Simon he needed to repent and to pray for forgiveness for the corruption in his heart. And I love Simon's response. Pray that none of these things happen to me. I think he's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Help. What a wonderful prayer. Help me. Help me. You know, I think, too, often we're often daunted by the problems in people. They come to us and you're like, oh, my goodness, there's a problem. I think the disciples... Looking out on the multitude, they're seeing hunger and deficits, and this is much too much for us. And Jesus is seeing sheep who need a shepherd. And I believe that we need the heart of Jesus not to be daunted when people get it wrong, but to be able to gently say, this is the issue. Let's move from wrong to right And that's what Simon was saying. Help me with these things. Help me get over these things. We too easily write people off, don't we? And God wants to write them in to the book of life. And he wants to bring them out of that. So here's this incredible revival that is going on in full swing. Philip gets to work next to Peter and John. Oh, my goodness, what a trio. And all of a sudden, James and, I'm sorry, John and Peter say, Philip, carry on. Good work. They head back for Jerusalem. And on their way, they're like, hey, God is working among the Samaritans. And they stop in different Samaritan villages and they share Jesus. And so now Philip's in charge of this great movement. And, this, and an angel of the Lord comes to him and says, go to the road that leads from Gaza to Jerusalem. And lest you get it wrong, Luke tells us, this is desert. So you're saying, God called Philip from this thriving multitude of people that's hungry, wants as much of Jesus as possible, to go to the desert where nobody is. This vacated road. Philip has learned to be open to Jesus Christ. He's learned that God has a plan. God always has a plan. So Philip goes to this desert road, and there he sees this chariot off to the side of the road. Isn't that incredible? It's like seeing a stalled car off to the side of the road. But this is a chariot, and it's an impressive chariot. We're dealing with one of the dignitaries from the court of Candace in Ethiopia. 
He's the treasure. He's over all her funds and all the riches of Ethiopia are under this man's discretion and control. And he's come to Jerusalem to worship. He's got a hunger for God, but we're told he's a eunuch, which means that he was not even allowed into the court of the temple because he's a eunuch. And we read in Leviticus, nobody who is maimed or self-maimed is allowed into the court of the Lord. So he's been rejected, but he's hungry. And the Lord tells Philip, draw near to that chariot. Now, you and I would probably be somewhat intimidated by that. It's a chariot. It's got a driver. It's got a notable person, and I am, I am not notable. I think I told you before, I'm sitting at this really impressive dinner in Washington, D.C. Bruce Willis is right behind me. Muhammad Ali is speaking. And I'm sitting at this table with important people. And, the, the, and, I've, and I'm wearing a borrowed St. John knit suit. And everything I've got is borrowed, except for my shoes. They're my own, and they're killing my feet. <laughs> and these people with their little autograph books are like, who are you? Because I'm at the important table. I'm like, I'm nobody. I, I'm married to this guy. Who is he? He's the one that planned and did the wedding of the girl who coordinated this event. Where is she? Behind the scenes. We're nobody. And they're like, oh, okay. And they got in line for Bruce Willis, you know? We're nobodies. And, and we can be so intimidated by the somebodies, right? Not realizing that the somebodies need Jesus as much as we need Jesus. Forgetting that we have the gift of eternal life and without Jesus, they will die. Their lives will continue to be fruitless and frustrating. They need Jesus. Years ago, we were with my parents. We just left their house and we were going out to dinner and as we turned the corner, there was a limousine stalled out on Irvine Avenue. And so my dad, he pulls over, and the chauffeur talks to us and says, oh, yes, you know, we were driving, and the, you know, this limousine is broken, and I need to go back to the house. We do have another limousine. Of course they do. And, you know, my dad says, okay, get in the car, and we'll drive you back. And he says, well, I can't leave, you know, my, my uh, patron, my mistress in the car all by herself. So... Brian gets out of the car to sit with her while we go and get the other, drop this guy off so he can get the other limousine. You know, so we're driving and we drive him back to get the other limousine. And um, it's a very impressive house, you know, one with the gates and uh, with a tennis court on top of the, the garage. You know, it's just like amazing, right? And so he, he goes and we wait for him and he opens the, um, the garage and he pulls out the other Rolls Royce and... Uh, you know, and, and so we, we go back. And, you know, I love my husband because he's never intimidated. He walked up to a rabbi one time eating a hamburger and drinking milk going, hey, you're a rabbi. He's like, Brian, this is not kosher. Come on. And so he had sat with her. He shared Jesus the entire time. I said, what did she do? Well, she flirted with me, so I shared Jesus even more. I said, good boy. You know, but here's this chariot that's, that's stopped at the side of this deserted road. 
And the Spirit of the Lord says to Philip, go join yourself with that chariot. Go up to that chariot. Philip goes up to that chariot. And as he gets closer, he hears the man reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Talk about a divine setup. God has gone before and he's reading it. And Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, no, and how can I unless somebody explains it to me? What an open door. And he invites Philip up into the chariot to explain it to him. And we're told that Philip starts at Isaiah 53. This passage about the suffering of Christ and what Jesus accomplished through the cross and preaches Jesus to this eunuch. This eunuch is so, so so receptive that he sees some water off to the side of the road and he said, what prevents me from being baptized right now? And Philip said, if you believe, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the man says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip takes him down into the water, this dignitary. He baptizes him. And as soon as he's baptized, the Spirit of the Lord carries Philip away. Philip never sees this Ethiopian again until he gets to heaven. And the Ethiopian goes back to Ethiopia sharing Jesus Christ and rejoicing over his salvation. We find Philip then in Azotus which is near the south coast of Israel. And he makes his way up to Caesarea, preaching Jesus. We find him actually in Acts 21, settled in Caesarea with four daughters who prophesy. You'll meet him again. You'll see Philip, but when we see him again, he's all grewed up. And he's got daughters that prophesy. But think about Philip. Because he was open to believe that God was greater than the circumstances, greater than the persecution. He was available by God to be used to bring outsiders inside the fold of God. He was available to bring Samaritans in, to bring Ethiopians in, to bring a eunuch in to the fold of God. His openness To say, Lord, use me in this, in this trial. God, you have a plan. Use me. Led him to Samaria. Led him to the Gaza Road. Led him to a chariot. Led him to Azotus. Led him to Caesarea. His realization that God was in absolute control opened him up to obedience and boldness. We are not to be overwhelmed by our trials. God desires to see, for us to see him sovereign, even in the toughest times. He wants us to say, Lord, use me in this. These trials have not come, not been allowed by God to defeat us, but to glorify his name through us, to give us a testimony 
Oh, those of you who have prayed, Lord, give me a testimony. You did it to yourself. (laughs) We are to attune our ears to his leading. Lord, in this place, what do you have for me? What circumstances have you been allowing to thwart your spiritual progress? You know, some people, when trials come, they're upset with God for letting this one get through. Like, Lord, why? And they spend so much time, why? And not asking, what do you want to do? But why did you allow this? Because they don't understand that God has a plan. God always has a plan. And instead of capitulating to the trial, we are to attune our ears to how God wants to use us in this trial to bring about his glory. He wants us to be part of his plan. Rather than resigning to the trial, we are to resign the trial to God. Put the trial under God's keeping. Put the trial on God's altar for him to do what he wants to do. And we are to ask for his leading and then attune our ears to his voice that we might hear him. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit that we might be empowered by him to do whatever he calls us to do in this trial. And then I want to say this. We are to have expectation for God to work. I believe as a body of women, we have lost our sense of expectation. That's what happens. We see a trial and we've forgotten that God works through these things for glory, for victory. We've lost our expectation. We need to get our expectation back on what God is going to do. We need to pray with expectation of what God will do. That's why James could say, when trials come your way, Jump for joy. That's my paraphrase. Why? Because God's going to do something. And this is his opportunity. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this. Only in acceptance lies peace. Not in resignation, nor in busyness. Resignation is surrender to fate. Acceptance is surrender to God. Resignation lies down quietly in an empty universe. Acceptance rises up to meet the God who fills that universe with purpose and destiny. Resignation says, I can't. Acceptance says, God can. Resignation says, it's all over for me. Acceptance asks, now that I am here, what's next, Lord? Resignation says, what a waste. Acceptance asks, in what redemptive way will you use this mess, Lord? God has a plan. God always has a plan. And it's up to us to put ourselves smack dab in the middle of God's plan. He has allowed these circumstances, trials, and hardships for greater glory, for greater purposes, We need to have the expectation again, filling our hearts, that God is about to work and do great things. Will you stand up?
Let's go before the Lord. Lord, these are your women. And Lord, I would guess that everyone in this room is going through something. Because we live here in California. And one in England. And we're all going through something, Lord. But Lord, we want to begin to look up with expectation. Lord, we want to put ourselves smack dab in the wonderful, great purposes that you have ordained before the foundation of the earth that we should walk in. Lord, we want to see you. Lord, turning the trials to glory. Lord, we want to see you stamping victory all over our life, Lord. Lord, we want to see you move. We want to see the word of God scattered all across this world. We want to see people filled with the Holy Spirit. We want to see sorcerers come to Jesus. We want to see the demonics delivered, the paralyzed begin to move every limb, and the lame begin to walk. Lord, we want to see the dignitaries being baptized in the name of Jesus and receiving understanding to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Lord, we want your name high and lifted up and your glory to fill the entire earth. And so, Lord, to this aim, we say, use us, use the circumstances of our life, We present our bodies as living sacrifices to the name of Jesus Christ and to the purposes of God the Father. And we give you every storm and every hardship and every trial of our life. And we say, come and get yourself glory in Jesus' name. Amen.